If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Uh, This is going to take at least a couple weeks to do. Um, We're going to read for the first 22 verses. I'll probably speak on maybe five, six, or seven verses today and then continue. Um, This is Paul uh, writing an epistle general to the Hebrews. So these are... These are uh, Christian churches, Jewish Christian churches, who have been spread all over the Mediterranean because of the persecution that happened. After Stephen was stoned, the church went everywhere. And as it went, it preached. And as it preached, people believed. And uh, a lot of these people are suffering. And the Hebrews, I I think, is one of the most incredible books in, in the New Testament for for various reasons. We'll look at it in a minute. But let's read it together. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance, again, made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which, when we are sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So in terms of a unique book, the book of Hebrews is completely unique. I see it as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's almost like if you ever had a code ring out of a box of Cracker Jacks, the book of Hebrews is a code ring. It is a way that a Christian 
can interpret what the, perp- what the meaning of the Old Testament was. The Old Testament is so mysterious. In fact, so many people don't read it at all because they don't see any relevance or pertinence to, them, to their lives at all. It's, it's mysterious in so many ways. It has, it has 600 or so laws. It has ceremonies and ordinances. It has a priesthood. It has numerous sacrifices where blood and animals were killed and blood was put on altars. It's so foreign to us. But yet, it is two-thirds of the Bible. It's what God intends for us to know about himself. But, but things have changed. We are in a particular situation. We're on this side of, of the cross. We're on the far side of Jesus coming. So Jesus was the reality that the Old Testament pointed forward to. But yet God had to teach people about himself. He, Jesus could not have come right after the Garden of Eden. And it meant anything. It wouldn't have mean, meant anything for Jesus to say, you need a savior, I'll save you, doesn't mean anything if you don't know that you need a savior. People have to be lost before they're ever saved. And so the book of Hebrews is talking about the Old Testament in a light of what it actually means in terms of what a Christian sees God intending. Okay, so, so as we look into the Old Testament stories, I love the Old Testament. I love stories. I love thinking and plot. I like characters and I like things happening. And, and then you stand back and say, what do I know about God from this? What do I know about me from this? Where do I see my Savior? Right? So a lot of people would say, we shouldn't even read the New Testament at all. There are false prophets in this country False, false preachers that preach on television all the time that say that you should not read the Old Testament, that it absolutely has nothing to do with the Christian at all. And it's blasphemy. That's absolute blasphemy. Because for me to know about Christ, I need to know about Christ. I need to know what he did and how he was. I need to know his office. And I need to know the holiness of God. I need to know that I've offended a holy God. And I can't know that. If you take out the Old Testament, I know nothing about God. The Jewish people knew pictures. This, this uh, verse 1 here says shadows. They knew shadows of the reality. They didn't know the reality, but they, they, they had pictures of it. God was training people to know who he is and what to expect of him and what he expects of us. And then when we know our reality then we know that we're undone. Then when there is a Savior preached to us, we with joy leap up and accept it. It's not something that I have to do with a yawn. It is something I want with all of my person to be, to be right with God knowing that I'm not. Well, how do I know if, I'm not, if I do not know who God is and God taught people for centuries about himself this way? Okay, so... so I'm going to say pictures. I'm going to say shadows. I'm going to say types. I'm going to say that God was teaching us like little children, right? Little tiny children. If you were to go to first grade and have a science book in the first grade, there's nobody would say, how dare you not teach the full truth about reality of the world? 
Well, there's nothing wrong with a first-grade science book. Just don't stop there. That's the idea. Like, there's more to it than what they have, but there's nothing wrong with starting with ideas that are graspable, uh, simple things that can be grasped and memorized, something that can be taken away. Well, the Old Testament does that. The Old Testament shows us real things, true things about a true God, but does not give us enough for our salvation, doesn't give us enough to know how we are right. But every single thing lines up. There isn't anything in the Old Testament that's not harmonizing with the cross. Everything leads to the cross. So uh, when you look at the idea that this is about sacrifices, you have to, let me pause and just tell you about the whole book of Hebrews. When I say the book of Hebrews is talking about the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament law and the Old Testament, how the Old Testament is constructed. Um, It starts with, essentially its premise, is that Jesus Christ is superior. And you could say, fill in the blank, superior to. And then it just starts. So it starts with the prophets, that God spoke to us in certain ways through the prophets in the old times, but now he speaks through his son. And it's a better message. God, Jesus prophesies who God is, preaches. Prophesy means to tell what God is saying. So he prophesies much better than the prophets who couldn't see it all. But Jesus knows it all. He can see it in its totality and be able to communicate it. He is a person like we are. And he's God. And he can communicate. He is a prophet like no prophets. It goes then into Jesus is superior to the angels, Everyone thought the angels were so above them, which I suppose is true in their power and in their ability. But Jesus is superior. Jesus as a man is superior to the angels. He is a man who is God. And then it continues. He's better than Joshua, the, the deliverer. He's better than Moses. And it goes on into, into the ordinances. He's better than the way that the temple is constructed the, to, to worship God. He's a better way to worship God than the temple was. He's a better way than, than the law. Than the, the, to worship God through Christ is to be accepted. To worship God through the law only is to be condemned. And we'll, we'll see it. By the time we get to 10, the argument is now on the sacrifices. That Jesus' sacrifice is better, more superior, than any of the sacrifices made by animals. That you could not... You couldn't do something, something that you could do and see, even something so awful as to kill your animal and pour its blood out and then burn it to ashes. Why? The idea is why, do you see? God must teach us that he is to be approached in a certain way. That's true of true. You do not approach God in any way other than he commands you to approach him. You can't just give him anything. You can't just make it up. You worship God appropriately. You approach God appropriately or not. And this world, this country is swarming with people who do it any way they please, as they wish, any, anything that occurs to them. And you worship God in whatever novel approach that you come up with. I'm sorry. God must be approached in a certain way. Now, that certain way is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you approach God. But do you see, it took centuries for God to prepare. 
And even the people who, when he came, when Christ came, nobody was ready. The, the people who had studied the law day after day and knew, had, had it memorized, knew where every comma was and where every, every T and I dot was, knew it all, could have in their mind seen the Old Testament written out and been able to read it from their memory, didn't recognize God when he came, didn't recognize the day of his visitation. And there was a, there was a condemnation there for that reason. His disciples, whose heart was ready Okay, so you have the first disciples were disciples of John the Baptist who had prepared the way and said, that's the Lamb of God. Don't follow me, follow him. And they stopped following John the Baptist and went and followed Jesus. Even they were so slow and so sluggy that they didn't know what was going on at the time. They couldn't even imagine. They were being bombarded with evidence that this was God himself. But it was more than their brains could imagine because... God must prepare so that it's all there and then break into your life. He breaks into your life like a thief in the night. And so that's, that's what we see. The book of Hebrews is a link. It's how to appropriately look at it. And when we talk about sacrifices specifically, um, chapter 9 in Hebrews said, without, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. These people knew that there must be an offering. You offer an animal that had to be killed as a result of your sin. You were to put your own hand on this animal, and you yourself were to plunge the knife. It wasn't something passive. It wasn't something wrapped in plastic that you get at the IGA. This was you doing it, and it was on your fault. You were saying, I identify that this animal is about to die because of me. Because I'm not right with God. So even that was just so strange because could you convince people, anybody, could you convince anybody? This verse 4 says, it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away your sins. Nobody would imagine that. Like, could you imagine you live as you please and just as long as you kill an animal, that animal atones for your sin and you continue. Do you see? There, there's a, almost an idea of how wrong is that? How unfair is that? How, how preposterous is that? If I'm the one that's guilty, I'm the one that's guilty. Okay? I, Melissa and I read a, a, a book once called the, the Picture of Dorian Gray. And there was this young, rich man who had his portrait painted. And I've, evidently he made a deal with the devil. And he lived eternally as he pleased and he would always stay young. But he had to keep this picture safe because what happened is everything that he did in his heart that made him uglier and uglier and uglier would go on the picture. And his picture got uglier and uglier and he stayed young and he stayed beautiful and he stayed whatever, rich. And the picture, and as long as the picture was never destroyed, he was fine. Well, the picture gets broken and he dies. That whole idea that you could get away with something by someone else paying for it, like a whipping boy. Remember, King Edward had a whipping boy. He had to go to school, and every schoolboy was whipped. Oh, those were the days. Every schoolboy was whipped. But are you going to whip the king? No, you don't whip the king. But what if the king didn't know his participles? What if the king didn't memorize his poem? You can't say, Your Majesty, you were wrong. Bend over the table. He had a whipping boy that you would say, Whipping boy, 
And he would come, yes, sir, bend over the table. And that's the whole idea. Like, is there an, a way that we could think that that was fair? This is God we're talking about, righteous God. Righteous God does not cover your sins with the blood of animals. Now, the atonement means cover. And essentially, that's what he was doing. He was, he was drawing a picture But it was always pointing to the fact that when Christ comes, his sacrifice takes away your sin. There is a a superiority to Christ's once-for-all sacrifice in that it's gone. It's not something you have to continuously do, right? So um, the first thing that I wrote down from this passage, and we'll go probably to verse 5 or 7, is they could not bring salvation or provide access to God. So let's let's read from verse 1, say, to 4. For the law, and I have to say the law is not just the law of Moses, but everything instituted in the law, all the priesthood, the regulations, the ordinances, the sacrifices, everything that the law contained is really what he's talking about. And specifically in this context, we're talking about sacrifices. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things can never with those sacrifices which are offered year by year continually to make the comers thereunto perfect. Okay? So these sacrifices could not make you complete. Right? Remember I talked about Bertie Losh, my English teacher, telling me what perfect meant. It meant that it's finished, that the action is completed, it's done. So for a worshiper to be completed means I'm acceptable to God. That's what it means. And these sacrifices did not make me in myself acceptable to God. At best, what it could do is cover my sins temporarily, almost as a down payment of something that would come later. It, it was a atonement means cover. It was a covering. It, cover, it shielded God's eyes from the real me so that he could accept me. But it was always conditional. It was always based upon the, it was year by year, and it had, to be, it had to happen every year. You have to realize that the Levites would, would slaughter animals all day long, day after day, all year long. You would have a morning sacrifice at the temple. You have an evening sacrifice at the temple. You would have seven festivals where everybody in the country would come to Jerusalem. You would sacrifice 30,000 lambs in a weekend. Okay, 30,000 lambs were, were dealt with in a weekend. Then you would burn parts of that, give parts of that, eat parts of that. All of it was very specific. All of it looking forward to the idea that God had to be approached in a certain way. There had to be a shedding of blood and there had to be a gift of something. But it didn't make you right with God. If it made you right with God, you would only have to do it once. If you were right with God, you wouldn't need another one. My sister had a kidney transplant when she was 17 in high school, so she's my age. And she has to take poisonous medicine every day of her life so that she, her body doesn't reject her transplanted kidney. Well, her medicine does not cure her. It's a treatment. A treatment is not a cure. A cure means that she wouldn't need it anymore. And in some strange way, the idea that she takes that reminds her that she's still sick. Well, that's what the atonement was. Every year it was done again. The high priest would come for the sins of the people, offer on the day of atonement, 
and it was offered every year, every year, every year. And then for one more year, God would accept the people. Not only your personal sacrifices and the daily sacrifices and the monthly new moon sacrifices, it was on and on and on. It was an unending procession of blood and gore. And why you would imagine, it's because God takes sin seriously. That is something you just absolutely have to know. Most of the atrocities that, the, that, that professing Christians make is because they don't believe that. They don't think that God is, is essentially unapproachable behind a veil. They think that he's one of the guys, that one of the boys. What I do, what I do is fine. You must accept me. You, everybody else must accept me, so you must accept me. It really doesn't work that way. God is God. He's transcendent above this place. He's above me. He's my creator. He's not my equal in any way. And so when you have a shadow, you have to say, okay, a shadow. So I was mowing the other day, and I guess a big bird must have gone over my head. I could tell that everything got dark, and then it got light again. And I immediately looked up because... When a shadow passes, there must be something above my head or a shadow wouldn't pass. Melissa and I were, were on the um, where were we? Greenbrier River, and an eagle, a bald eagle flies over us. And we're talking about the whole, the whole boat just went dark and then went light again. We immediately looked up, and there was an eagle right above our heads. A shadow indicates the reality, Okay. Well, so I need you to see that the book of Hebrews is talking about shadows. In fact, verse 10 starts this idea. You have the cross. You have the act of Christ. You have the office of Christ. You have the person of Christ. You have the the being of Christ in all of the zillion different aspects, that, that facets that make up that diamond. And it casts a shadow back into the Old Testament. And that shadow that lands there is what it is because of the reality. It's the way it is because of the reality. So I do not agree with Andy Stanley, I'll say his name, he's not watching, that would say, you don't read the Old Testament. That's outrageous. Yes, you do. You need it. We need to know who God is. We need to know what he expects. So that, so that when you see the cross casting its shadow back into the Old Testament, You don't know everything about the cross that you need if you do not have that shadow. The shadow tells you to look up, there's a bird above your head. That's what it does. And so the shadows cover the entire landscape of the Old Testament in every way. And it means something different in every part. Where it lands on this land and where it lands on this land is telling you something slightly different about Christ. But you need it all. Because, yes, we have the stories of the Gospels, very, very small. John said if everything that we, that we saw, we wrote down, the world couldn't contain the books. So, so we have some stories about Christ, and the, the, uh, the apostles showed or, or explained the, the life of Christ very well in the epistles. But the richness of what we know about the cross, what we know about Christ, what we know about his office, what we know about his person is found in the Old Testament. You have to see it there. Um, the best picture I have to say is from one of my science classes. Two British guys in the 1950s got the Nobel Prize for the structure of the DNA molecule. And most people know it's a kind of curly cue, kind of a spiral staircase. It's in every one of your cells. It's the blueprint of how to make you. Okay, you want to make some insulin? 
they go to chapter something in, on this page, and there's the recipe. You want to know how to make your bone or how to make you blue-eyed or brown-eyed? It's all there for you, okay? Well, to know the structure of it, to know actually what it looks like, helps you to know what it, its function is. And that's why they won the Nobel Prize. Well, they won the Nobel Prize in a very interesting way. They can extract the DNA. Um, my kids in the school can extract DNA. It's very easy. Um, but it's a sludgy kind of a gross, like it's a snotty kind of stuff that you can get out. But from that, you can't really tell what the structure is. It's too small. So they crystallized it. And then they shined x-rays through it. And when they shined x-rays through it, they actually looked at the wall like a projector. They shined x-rays to it and then went up to, the, to a screen. And they could see that it was very concentric. It was cyclic. It was circular. It was completely the same all the time through, and they were like, the only way that makes sense is that it's a, it's a spiral staircase that just keeps going around and around like a corkscrew. And they were absolutely right. And it was, they, they were looking at the real, but they had to have the shadow to know what the real was. They had to get their mind around what the real was. Even the real in their hand, they had to look further back, and that's what it is. So the shadow is no substance in itself, but it suggests or proves the reality. This is Hebrews chapter 1. Who, speaking of Christ, being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of, of the majesty on high. He's the brightness of God's glory. He's the express image of his person. So Jesus is no shadow. Jesus is the real Jesus is not a shadow of God. He is the image of God, the exact image of God. What you see is what you, you want to know who God is, look at Jesus Christ. You want to know what God does or how he acts, how he treats people? You look at the way Jesus Christ treated. You know what makes him furious? What made Christ furious? You can, 100% of the time, you can go tit for tat, knowing exactly who God is, the invisible God by the visible Son. You can see it. You know it, and you know him. You actually can have communion with God by knowing him. This is Colossians 1.15. Who, speaking of Christ again, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Colossians 2.17. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. You see, he's the real, and the real is casting a shadow in all of these images. So a shadow can't help you. That's why I, I just want to say this purpose of this, of this whole idea of the first four verses is that the Old Testament law, the sacrifices, the ordinances, the priesthood, everything, all these pictures, isn't enough to save you. You can't say that a, a pious Jew is right with God. He, because even though this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not acceptable in himself. It's not enough to save his soul. It, the only saved people are hiding behind the cross of Jesus. There is nothing else to hide behind. Otherwise, all you have is you, and you're not enough. You're not enough. So shadows don't help you, but I have to say, too, shadows don't harm you. So the, the shadow of death, you heard that in Psalm 23. Like, the, as I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I was reading a book by C.S. Lewis, who's a British theologian in the 40s, 50s, and his wife died, and he was driving his son to the funeral. And his son was crushed, and 
he was trying to say something that his son would kind of understand and comfort him. And it was a bright summer, shining sun day. And he was driving on the road, and a huge truck was coming on the other side. But the shadow of that truck was in the lane they were driving in. Can you see that in your head? The sun, the sun was shining on the truck. The truck's shadow was on the lane that they were driving in, and the truck was on the other lane. And he said, look at that truck. Do you see it coming? Do you see its shadow? Do you see its shadows coming? It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It hits us. He said, what do you think would hurt more, to get hit by that truck or to get by, hit by the shadow of that truck? And I don't know if it helped that boy, but that exactly was what I needed. The, the, the law which condemns me is a shadow of the perfections of Jesus Christ who died for me. So everything that God would condemn me, he condemned his son instead. That makes me happy. That makes me comfortable. Because you will always self-condemn. You will go in circles condemning yourself. You know you deserve hell. And so every moment you go back to that default of God must destroy me. And then you say, no, I have a savior. Jesus was destroyed. I do not need to be destroyed. God loves me for his sake. Do you see it? That's comfort. It buoys you up. It's like, it's like, the, like a fishing bobber. That pops right to the top of the, of the water. It doesn't matter how deep that water. The water could be infinitely deep, and it would float on the top. That's what a Christian does. The Christian has comfort because that shadow cannot save me, but that shadow cannot damn me. The shadow of the law can only condemn me, but I have been saved by the, by the Savior. So the second thing I wrote down was that these shadows could not remove sin. It couldn't take away sin. Let's look at verse 2. For, when, for then they would not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers, once purged, would have no more conscience of sin. Once, you're, once it's gone, you don't have a conscience that you've offended God. Now, God in his mercy allows you to remember your sins, but your true conscience, okay, your memory, and, and sometimes that's in my own sinful, I, I like to waller in my pity, I want people to pity me, so that's, I remind myself of my sins, and then I have to preach the gospel. And when I say preach the gospel, it might happen 50 times a day or 100 times a day or a trillion times a day. You preach the gospel repeatedly to yourself that God accepts you on Jesus' behalf and he loves you for that reason. And you're forever in his hands. That is, that's comfortable. So when you, when you say that if my conscience has no memory of my sin, then it would have ceased. You know, the one pill, and I would have done, been fine. I would have been fixed. It doesn't work. It's not treatment. It would have been a cure. So if there was a cure, you're done. You don't have to do it again. Do you see? When God is God to me, all of the thousands of requirements are met in Christ. Now, I know them because I do want to please God, really, practically. I want to have a life that looks like his. But my condemnation was not based upon my offense. That's, that's, my conscience is gone. When you preach the gospel to yourself, I promise, if you're a safe soul, your conscience is immediately cleared. You know that you are free. You're, and that freedom gives you joy. It's a joy unspeakable. So if, if they would have ceased, why would I continuously offer sacrifices? The sacrifices only reminded me, this is verse 3, but those sacrifices are a remembrance again of every sin. 
So just the fact that there was had to be a new sacrifice every day, every year, every every 50 minutes, reminded me that I was still under God's wrath, that I had to be covered and more covered and more covered and more covered. And if you are sensitive to your sin and you had to kill your animals, think about the comedy there. I, I couldn't make it back from the priest to my, I couldn't make it back to the pen before I'd have to grab another sheep. I would be so poor because, because I know that I don't live the standard that God lives. Do you see it? And so, so there is always that idea that you start, a Christian always starts, bangs into the law, bangs into God's standard, and then is bounced back by the gospel and is buoyed back up. And every single time that happens, I praise Jesus more. I value Jesus more. If I only felt one or two sins a year, Jesus would never be valued in my life. I'd be, oh, yeah, I've got a Savior. I'm a Christian, whatever. I go to church. That's nothing. Who, who doesn't do that? But if you are continuously knowing that if it were not for God, I would not be accepted, and you know who you really are, but that Jesus, who he really is, and that you really are truly loved... What is not joyful about that? That's happy. That's true happiness. That's what it is. Verse 4 says, is it basically the culmination of this argument, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Okay? So, so I would say the atonement is the main story of the Bible. If you were going to preach one message on the whole Bible, it would have to be the idea of how does a sinful man acceptable before a holy God? And the whole first part of the Bible, which is called the Old Testament, and the word is meaning covenant, the Old Covenant, is that man is acceptable before God by being covered, his sin being covered, and he being accepted in that stead. And then the, the whole part, uh, end part is essentially preaching a, a sermon on the Old Testament that Christ, God himself, came, and as, that, as a result... He truly takes away. That's expiation. He takes it away. It's not covered. It's not atoned. There is an atoning sacrifice, but it's more of the idea of an expiatory. It's, it takes it away. It takes it and moves it somewhere else to where it's not even there anymore. It's not that it's just hidden so you can't see it. All right. It's not a mask where your real face is behind a mask. It's a, it's a recreation, that you're a new creature. Old things are gone and you're something new. And God sees it. God sees the real. He doesn't see the fraud. And it's not a fake. He's not lying, calling you good when you're bad. He simply calls you righteous. And then as you do that, you start living in a righteous way. You do change. It absolutely change. So this is Leviticus 16. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Do you see it? So, so the atoning sacrifice of, of, of the animals was a picture of what actually happened when the blood of Christ touches your soul. It cleans you. It's a true cleansing. And there is no offense anymore. The last thing I wrote down is that the Old Testament sacrifices were merely external. Something on the outside. It was not something that changed me. It only made it seem that I was acceptable because you covered something. But the real me couldn't ever be seen. Okay, that's, that's different. So, so this is Isaiah chapter 1. 
To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I'm full of burnt offerings of rams and fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or lambs or he goats. They make me sick. All All of this pretense where your heart's not right, but you're offering sacrifices. You're killing animals in place of living in front of me. I hate that. Do you see? So two things need to be had right. God doesn't just give you a savior and give you that same cruddy, awful, sinful heart. He recreates your heart and gives you a, his spirit that's in you and makes you desire him. Now I want to please God and can. Do you see the difference? There is no frustration. I want to please God because God changed me and then allowed me to pray to, to be acceptable through Christ. So a so I don't care. You convince me, demons in my ears, that who I am. All I have to say is Jesus Christ was perfect and he died on Calvary. And my desire that God showed me is evidence that he changed my heart because I want to give Christ to God. I want to take Christ my Savior and present him in my stead. That's evidence that I'm saved. Do you see it? My evidence is then I want to do it. It's not simply you're, you have to do it. You must do this and you don't care. Oh, yeah, I'll just kill an animal. It's okay. It's, a, it's an easy price. I'm rich. No, God changes your heart and then gives you a Savior. He does both. And so the Old Testament sacrifices were external. But what Christ does is in the inside. So we're going to look at this from the next passage or the next part of this uh, next time. Okay? And the good story is next because that is Jesus. This was what didn't work. I just spent 40 minutes telling you what didn't work. Hopefully, we'll see what works later. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless us for Jesus' sake and that you would apply your word to our heart and that it would mean something great to us and that you would change us into your image for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.